0: Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.
1: Many things in life are based on negotiation and being able to successfully conduct one. Sometimes, even our lives and livelihoods depend on it. And my guest today is an expert on all things negotiation. Derek Gant is a lecturer, author of Ego Authority Failure, and a trainer with 29 years of law enforcement experience, 20 of which is a team member, leader, and then commander of hostage negotiation teams in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. He's a hostage, negotiation, and incident comment subject matter expert who frequently speaks at hostage negotiations and SWAT conferences across the country. And as a member of the Black Swan Group, he is a negotiation trainer and personal coach. Derek has trained throughout the U.S. and around the world instructing business organizations on how to apply hostage negotiation practices and principles to their world. I want to jump right into your backstory. How yeah. did you actually um, become passionate about interpersonal communications and how did you become a hostage negotiator?
0: Uh, interesting set of circumstances put me on this path. I started my law enforcement career in 1988 and I spent about two years doing things that a regular normal patrol officer would do. But at the time that I came on, the US was in the grips of a, a drug epidemic, similar to the one that we're seeing now, only the drug at that time was uh, crack or rock cocaine. And it hit us with such a, a, a speed and a an aggressiveness that we weren't ready for. Our response was to formulate specialized units to attack the drug problem from the street level perspective. And that's where I gravitated to. I was selected to be a part of this street level narcotics enforcement unit. And what I found in very short order, was that the drug trade always had a a, a connection with another crime. Mm-hmm. And so the people that were arrested in the drug trade often had information about those other crimes. And I found that I was able to say specific things in a specific manner to elicit specific responses from the people who were I was interacting with. And they would share with me information in order to minimize their exposure to the drug offense. And so I found that I was able to get information out of people who were otherwise reluctant to give it. And I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. And I said, there's got to be more to it. And the more to it was me being selected to the criminal investigation section where I became a detective. And now I've taken those interpersonal communication skills and turned them to interview and interrogation skills. And I was hooked at that point because I was seeing the psychology behind people sharing information from with you that they would be otherwise reluctant to share. And so having spent some years in the detective bureau honing my interview and interrogation skills, I was asking myself what else is there? There's got to be more. And then I heard about this discipline called hostage negotiation. So in 1997, five spots opened up on our hostage negotiations team. I competed for one of those five spots and was eventually selected. And the rest, as they say, is, is history. I became enamored with the fact that I was able to have conversations with people, have them open up to me and reveal information that either was against their penal interest or against their own personal safety or because they were traumatized. Those were the the main three reasons why people would want to keep information for me, and I was able to unlock the defenses and get them to share with me the information that I needed to do my job better. And that's all that we did in, in hostage negotiation: is we used our skills to influence people into doing what we needed them to do, and that in the hostage world, it was to surrender. And so, fast forward 2001, I met Chris Voss, author of Never Split the Bit Difference, CEO of the Black Swan Group, and he and I became fast friends. And when he left the FBI in 2007. He says, I'm starting up this company, and I think I want to take what we've been doing in hostage negotiation and apply it to the business world. And we have not looked back.
1: Outstanding. And of course, Chris Voss is also a name that will resonate with many here in the audience. For both you and and him, when we're talking about hostage negotiations, uh, I mentioned it before, a normal person's challenges during their career may at times be stressful, perhaps even amount to decisions that'll affect their livelihood. But in your career, literally... Lives were at stake. It does not get more stressful than that. How do you train your mind to keep calm in high-risk situations?
0: How do you train your mind? The mind training that you need to be successful, whether you're in the law enforcement world or in the private sector, it it starts before you get into the room. It starts before you get on to the call. Your mindset has to be one of genuine curiosity. I don't care how long you've had a relationship with another person. If you're going to engage them in a difficult conversation, Conversation, then you're going to have to resolve yourself to the fact that you're going to be attacked during that conversation. And one of the ways to keep from getting triggered during that attack is to stay genuinely curious. No matter how long you've known them, there's something that's going on with them that you have no clue about, that you will uncover in this conversation. And if you stay curious, that prevents you from getting triggered because our brains don't work that way. You can't be curious and angry at the same time. You can't be curious and frustrated at the same time. You can't be curious and anxious at the same time. You have to be one or the other. So curiosity is the mindset. Now, in the moment, all of us in these difficult conversations at some point will feel the angst, will feel the anxiety, will feel the anger start to build up. And in the moment, as silly as it may sound, identify the emotion internally. So I would say starting; is starting to get under my skin. And that immediately will start to dissipate the negative emotions that you've associated with the interaction. And that's not just Derek telling you that. If you guys don't believe me, if you Google fMRI emotion and watch the plethora of studies that have been done where they've taken participants, shown them a graphic image of something horrible. Let's say for this for the sake of this discussion, let's say it's a a mutilated cat and their brains are wired up to the machine for the recording, and they show them the f- picture and they say, what are you feeling right now? They show the picture, they can see the amygdala light up inside the brain. And as soon as the person identifies the emotion that they're feeling as a result of seeing the picture, they see the activity, the electrical activity in the amygdala start to dissipate. So it's we call it self-labeling. So when you label those emotions, so self-label those emotions, and it's gonna sound silly. The first four or five times that you do it, you're gonna feel ridiculous doing it, but the power is there. Superhumanize.
1: It's very interesting what you're bringing up now. The self-labeling is something that people may recognize, for example, from meditation practices, uh, Mm -hmm. when emotions Mm -hmm. or thoughts arise to just call them by name. And then that way you're able to let them go. And curiosity, that is a really interesting concept. It sounds to me also like when we stay curious, we stay open and we take things less personal because getting triggered often has to do obviously with prior experiences that our brain reacts to, but often also with our ego, with our ego, right? For (laughs)
0: sure. without question. And the attack that you may encounter during a difficult conversation is a manifestation of something else. Mm -hmm. We get wrapped around the axle because she started yelling at and our mindset should be not that she started yelling at us. Why did she start yelling? Because when we are attacked during a difficult conversation, it's usually coming from one of three places. The first place is you're missing something. There's something that it's important to them that they're trying to convey. They think they're doing it appropriately, but You haven't picked up on it. The second reason that they will attack you during a conversation is you have failed to recognize the pressure that they're under on their side, wherever that pressure is coming from. The third reason that you'll get attacked during a difficult conversation is they're trying, it's a manipulative ploy. They're trying to manipulate you. They know that the attack will put you in a defensive posture and make you uncomfortable. As human beings, when we are uncomfortable, what we want to do more than anything else as fast as possible is get comfortable again. And the people that use the the attack manipulate, know that will put you in a position where you're going to compromise something that you have no business compromising on. You'll capitulate, you'll give away things that you have no business doing. You are actually hurting your own position. So what do you do? You have to figure out which one of the three it is. Mm -hmm. You can't, most people during an attack, during a difficult conversation will pivot off of that topic and move somewhere else just to have peace restored in the conversation. That attack is the elephant in the room and it hasn't gone anywhere because you have failed to acknowledge it. It's still there and it's going to come back later in the conversation. So my advice is to stay in the moment and don't be so concerned by the fact that you got attacked. Be concerned with where it's coming
1: outstanding insight. And of course, when we get attacked, and what you just mentioned, we get uncomfortable. I think that also puts the brain in a place of it's the unknown. The brain does not like the unknown, because that's a potential threat to our existence and survival. So we may, yeah, so either a lot of people then counterattack. Or they try to flight.
0: And the counterattack is the worst thing you could possibly do. Yeah, I've been asked by by clients uh, and participants in our online courses. So... In the heat of the moment, when he's coming at me, when is it okay for me to come back at him? And I said, it's never okay for you to come back at him unless your intent is to make your counterpart dumber, which is what we do. And that goes back to what you just mentioned. When that amygdala fires up, you see your amygdala is very interesting. It's kept us alive for thousands of years. And when there is a threat, initially your amygdala can't tell the difference between a literal threat or a figurative threat. It can't tell the difference between, let's say an active shooter, in your workplace in a difficult conversation, it'll fire up just the same. It's the prefrontal cortex that helps us determine whether or not this is actually life or death. And the problem is when the amygdala is activated, it blocks what's supposed to be going on in that prefrontal cortex, which brings me back to that statement. If you want to make your counterpart dumber, yes, then attack back. But the, at the end of the day, you need to understand that your brain works up to 31% more efficiently when you're in a positive. What do you think you're supposed to do with that aggressive counterpart? Put them in a positive state as quickly as possible. You want them as cognitively nimble as they can be as you push through the conversation or otherwise it's for naught.
1: So they also make better and more balanced decisions and decisions that are not just based on getting triggered. Can you maybe give us an example of if you are at liberty to speak about it without certain uh, details, but what was the most challenging hostage negotiation of your career? What was a stake and how did you manage to resolve it?
0: Actually, probably the most challenging one that I had was not one that I actually negotiated. This is after I got promoted. And so I was managing the negotiation effort. I actually had, I actually, in this particular incident, I had six different negotiators that had engaged this person and and several of them were doing it simultaneously. And what I mean by that is we were calling inside on the telephone. We were using a a bullhorn outside of his location. And we're also using a, a, a robot that we sent close to the crisis site in order to communicate with him via robot so i had negotiators sprinkled everywhere trying to communicate with this guy and what made it so difficult is what was at stake he had in violation of court order snatched his son from the mother and barricaded himself in his home and so it was tenuous for us because we knew that the kid was safe at the time and he probably would remain safe unless and until somebody tried to get in between him and the kid. And our position was he was probably going to then kill the kid and then kill himself. And so that's what made it difficult. The length of time it went for 20 hours, 21 hours before it finally uh, was resolved. And I talk about this a little bit in, in the book. Ego and authority played a significant role in the decision-making of how we were going to manage the incident. And and at at times it put us on the precipice of doing something disastrous that would have cost more than we were willing to pay. And so what that involved was a negotiation within the, the negotiation. So while I was not on the phone with the quote bad guy inside the crisis site, I was negotiating with my bosses to say, we probably shouldn't go left. We should probably go which was a challenge in and of itself to get them to understand that what we are contemplating, what we are talking about flies in the face of policy, procedure and best practice. And as a result, we are putting lives in danger. And so that's a message that I had to convey to them. And I'm conveying to them in a deferential manner because they're obviously they're the bosses. They make the ultimate decision. But I, my intent was to may have them if they were going to make the decision that they were contemplating, I wanted them to do so in spite of what I said, not because they didn't know. Mm-hmm. So that's what that's what was important to me was to convey that message. So that was a negotiation with them by me in order to go right instead of left in this particular instance. And and I was able to convince them of that. It just took a lot of work.
1: Yes. And it seems like that was a negotiation or the managing of negotiations in both directions that you had yes. massive massive pressure from the situation yes. and then the superiors.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. Superhumanize.
1: Isn't hostage negotiation or even like the negotiation, for example, that you had with your superiors there. Is it almost like a foreign language that you have to learn about practice?
0: That's a great point. And the short answer is yes. Everything that we espouse in the discipline of hostage negotiation that has been improved by the Black Swan Group Mm -hmm. is just like a foreign language. It's counterintuitive. The skills are awkward, which is the biggest hurdle. You're going to feel awkward the first time you use them. You're going to say to yourself, I can't imagine me actually saying this. I can't, Can you give I, us an
1: example of, of,
0: of the type of skill? Okay. So yep. the, the The accusations audit is a list of the negative opinions, assumptions, and impressions that the other side has about you, has about the circumstance, and has about the conversation. So you want to think, what is my counterpart harboring about me that's negative? If they were standing on a street corner and they were hurling invectives about me, what would I want to stand next to them and deny? And you'd make a list of those things. And when you start that conversation, you're starting the conversation with that list. You're It, it sounds something like this. You're, you're probably going to wonder why you agreed to take this phone call in the first place. You may be thinking that this is a power play on my part, that I'm trying to impose my will. And you probably have some reservation about my level of experience in this area. And you may even think that we're being greedy. Mm-hmm. And I let those sit for effect. They may or may not be thinking those things. It doesn't matter whether they are or not, this is my attempt to show them that this conversation is not about me. This conversation is about you. And and with that, I'm automatically setting the stage where I am deferring and subordinating myself to the other side, regardless of what the hierarchy or the power structure looks like. I'm telling them, I'm trying to see this from your perspective. Now, what makes that counterintuitive? You're taking a negative light and you're pointing it back at yourself. Who does that? Not many people do that. It is one of the most fearless and selfless acts that you can undertake when you're interacting with another person. And so that's an example of the counterintuitive nature. And because it feels awkward, people tend to push back against it. Mm. But the power of the accusations on it cannot be denied. But to your point as to a foreign language... How awkward were you when you learned to speak something outside of your native tongue? And remember when you first tried to speak those first few words and how ham-handed and and completely uh, unwieldy and uncomfortable you felt in the moment. And if, let's say, for example, I'm learning to speak Spanish. My first five days of learning to speak Spanish are not going to be enough for me to feel comfortable for you to take me and drop me into Mexico City and say, hey, go for it, because I wouldn't have been but it takes the repetitions 67 repetitions to develop a new habit that's when the neural pathway has been grooved in your brain and that's what it takes is just repetition the other side of that awkwardness coin is within awkwardness comes accelerated learning because you have to focus hard and so you're actually when you're feeling awkward you're actually accelerating your learning process but your your analogy this is like learning a foreign language I use that all of the time because it's so true because I'm getting I'm not getting people at age 15 16 years old that want to learn how to do this I'm getting people in their 30s in their 40s in their 50s in their 60s who already have significant life experience they've already been doing things a certain way many of them are already already successful with what they're doing. And that further exacerbates their ability to absorb. And so keeping it in perspective of learning a foreign language is an easier way for me to get them to start to embrace the content.
1: And to absorb and to be open, like you said, to be curious. Yeah. It sounds to me also... really important part of negotiation, especially hostage negotiation. What you just said also is shining the negative light on you. Something that's really important seems to be empathy. And I know there is a difference between having empathy and having tactical empathy. Can you explain that?
0: Yeah. So most people view empathy through an emotional prism and, and emotion is only a small part of it. Emotional empathy means you're feeling what the other person, is feeling. Mm -hmm. Emotional empathy is a subjective state that's usually brought on by emotional contagion. Mm -hmm. I see you start to tear up. I get a lump in my throat. I start to tear up. That's emotional empathy. Tactical empathy is your deliberate attempt. And the key word in there is deliberate. You're a deliberate attempt to identify and verbalize the perspective of another person. You're trying to desperately to understand what the lay of the land looks like from their perspective. And therein lies the difference. It has nothing to do with feeling what they feel. It has more to do with seeing what they see. It doesn't mean that you like them. It doesn't mean that you agree with them. It just means you understand this is how they view things. And so tactical empathy just means you're deliberately trying to identify their perspective, but more importantly, verbalize that identification most of us identify what's going on with another person almost instantaneous where we struggle is articulating i don't know that you truly understand what I'm going through unless you say it. Mm-hmm. And most people have a fear of articulating. It. They're afraid of getting it wrong. They're yes. afraid of exacerbating the situation. They're afraid that the person is going to judge them for what they say. And so they stay away from it. And so how
1: you... can we articulate something? Because what you just said for me is exactly that fear of getting it
0: wrong. Mindset. Again, fear of getting it wrong. People have, and I don't care who the person is. I don't care if it's uh your 10-year-old son or daughter or it's a 30-year-old ISIS commander. Mm-hmm. Both of those people want somebody else to understand what they're going through. Mm-hmm. What people have this innate or an intrinsic drive to have other people understand and they have other people listen. And so your attempt at verbalizing what you have identified is more important than your accuracy. Your attempt is gonna resonate with them. If you get it wrong, what are they going to do? This is one of our laws of negotiation gravity. If you were to identify and then articulate something that's going on with me and you miss the mark completely, what am I going to do? I'm going to correct you because the, the, one of our laws of negotiation gravity, the desire to correct is irresistible. People can't wait to tell you that you got it wrong.
1: And then they give you information that you actually desire. Boom. Oh, no.
0: Just like that. They give you more accurate information. They say, no, it's not this, it's that. And we're always on safe ground, especially with a label, because our labels are structured with it looks, like it seems like it sounds like you've done it to me probably seven times on this call already. And it's not your judgment about what you're hearing. This is you telling me, this is the data that you're giving me. I didn't say you were angry. I said you sounded angry. How is what I'm hearing wrong. And you put it right back on them saying, hey, buddy, this is the data that you're giving me. I'm not making this up out of whole cloth. So you're always going to be on safe ground. The other thing is the attempt. In every difficult conversation, there's going to be a latent dynamic or emotion. I'm sorry, a presenting dynamic or emotion or a latent dynamic or emotion. True tactical empathy uncovers the latent dynamic or emotion. What are they not saying with the words that they use? And how do you figure that out? Intuition, i.e. your subconscious. Your conscious brain processes 40 bits of information per second. Any idea how many bits of information per second your subconscious brain?
1: Many more. I wouldn't know the number, but I would guess that it's manifold.
0: Many fold. 20 million bits of information per second. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow is right. That's you knowing something without really knowing how you know it. Yeah. And so when you start to listen for underlying dynamic, you start to identify things that the other side has not spoken into the ether. You're sending a powerful message to them that you're picking up on everything that's going. If I say to you, I can't believe she did this to me again, I hate her for it. This is killing me. What did you hear? What did I just say to you?
1: That you've been repeatedly going through certain situations and that you have not managed to remedy them and that the repetition of it actually caused you to go into real imbalance. The anger and it's killing me. So you're at a state, you're standing at the edge and it's because you haven't been able to remedy what has been going on for a long time. And you're blaming the other for the situation.
0: I hate her for it. You picked up on it. You said, sounds like you're angry. But I also said, it's killing. What am I telling you when I say it's killing? Figuratively uh, speaking, literally speaking, it's not killing me. I'm standing here talking to you. Mm -hmm. What am I trying to convey to you?
1: You're at the end of your ropes.
0: And what else? It's killing. I'm in an extreme amount of pain.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: I didn't say that. I said, it's killing me. I didn't say I was angry. I said, I hate her for it. Mm -hmm. Intuitively, you picked up on the anger, intuitively. You picked up on the pain, even though I never used either one of those two words. That's what I mean by paying attention to your subconscious. Because once you can start to label, once you start to identify things that they don't say, the bond is established quicker and it's made stronger over the course of the conversation.
1: Because mm, the person also feels finally feels seen, listened and heard, to and yeah. heard. Seen and heard, yeah.
0: Seen and heard. Superhumanize.
1: So there's this thing I read about called forced empathy. What is forced empathy and why is it a powerful negotiation tactic?
0: All right. So when we talk about forced empathy, what we're really talking about is reciprocal empathy. Mm -hmm. We probably should change the terminology to reciprocal empathy because what we're doing is we're forcing that reciprocal empathy back on us. When we get to that point of the conversation where we're going to to state our goal or objective, we're going to make our ask, we're going to draw our line in the sand, that's when we're going to force reciprocal empathy back on us. Mm -hmm. And we do that because we've already demonstrated it for the other side. That's probably the most most valuable aspect to tactical empathy is that it encourages reciprocity because you did it first. They're more inclined. You're obligating them subconsciously, you're obligating them to reach toward you because you spent the majority of the conversation reaching towards them. And so when we talk about forced empathy, we're talking about forced reciprocal empathy because consciously or subconsciously the person that you're dealing with can't wait to rid themselves of that obligation that they owe you.
1: And is this something that one that would apply only to neurotypicals or is it very different if you're dealing with somebody who's just wired differently? Let's say somebody who would be um, classified as a psychopath, for example.
0: All right, well, interesting. Psychopaths um, don't display a lot of it unless it's going to benefit them, but they're, they're still susceptible to it just like every other. Because here's the thing. These skills are based on human nature response, human nature response only. And even if you're dealing with a paranoid schizophrenic, the skills work. It's not going to be easy, but take the first word in that label, paranoid schizophrenic. What are they dealing with daily? They're mm. dealing with fear daily, and so that's what we that's what we focus on with the psychopath or the, or the sociopath. Incidentally, they probably are the second best purveyors on the planet of demonstrating tactical empathy mm. because they understand its power. They understand why. It works, and I say the second best because the best on the planet are obviously hostage negotiated But both of us are not doing it because we're necessarily nice people, and Vex right. psychopaths aren't. They're doing it because we do it because we know that it works. That the Ted Bundy was a prolific mass murderer in the States. He was executed in 89 for the murder of a 12-year-old girl. He admitted to murdering at least 30 other women. That's what he admitted to, mm-hmm. which means it's probably twice that. Yeah. How was he able to get so many otherwise intelligent people into positions of compromise that ultimately cost them their lives?
1: With regards to negotiations, of course, listening is immensely important. Just like you talk to me about right now somebody says I hate her it's killing me so there's uh what you call the five levels of listening right can we talk about that can you give us the bird's eye view of that
0: all right so the five levels of listening intermittent listening rebuttal listening for logic listening for emotion and logic and then listening empathetically those are the five different levels obviously in conversations that are important you need to be at that fifth level that empathetic listening where you're listening for the logic and emotion but but also symbolism, meaning, life's narrative. If this is a part of what they're trying to convey to us, why is it important to them? based on their view of the world. That's the fifth level. In conversations of import, that's the level that you need to, to be at. Most of us operate throughout the course of the day at levels one and levels two, where we're intermittent listening, level one, we're listening just long enough to get the gist of what the other person is saying. And then we turn off and we start listening to our own internal monologue. Or rebuttal listening where we're listening long enough till they say something we know we can argue with. And now you're just waiting for them to shut up so you can tell them how brilliant you are. That's where most of us do our dancing during the day. At the deepest level, level five, empathetic listening. It takes energy. It takes effort and it's exhausting, which is why most people won't do it because by and large, most people are lazy. It's so labor intensive that I would submit to you, it's impossible to operate like that 24 hours a day, seven days a week because of the amount of energy that you expend. So you have to be able to flip that switch and turn it on when it needs to be turned on. Because at the end of the day, if you don't understand them and their worldview, if you don't understand their worldview, you don't understand them. You don't understand them. Meaningful dialogue is not going to take place.
1: Mm-hmm. And in your long career, of course, as an active hostage negotiator, and we're going to talk about the this current part of your life, which I find super intriguing as well but in your career as a hostage negotiator what's the biggest lesson you've taken from that
0: the biggest lesson is in order to be successful you have to regardless of the circumstance the guy is inside the house and he's holding a two-year-old baby down on a table with a bottle of drain cleaner over the baby's mouth threatening to pour the drain cleaner into the baby's mouth you have to be able to to subordinate yourself and defer to that guy. If you can't, if you are unable to subordinate and defer to your counterpart, at least for the first portion of the conversation, you're putting yourself at a distinct disadvantage. So it's the ability to keep your emotions in check and not trying to force the issue before it's time, mm. being able to sequence the conversation appropriately, mm. putting your goal and objective on the back seat until the appropriate time. My goal and objective as a hostage negotiator was to get the people out and hopefully get the bad guy to surrender. That was my ultimate goal and objective. Mm. How many times do you think I led with that on my initial call inside the crisis site where I called inside the crisis site and I said, hey, John Doe, this is Derek from the police department. My goal and objective is to get everybody out alive. So why don't you put the gun down, let those people go and you come out. And the answer to that question is I never led with that. I never led with that. And the same is true in the private sector, in the the corporate world. We want to go into the room with all of our data and information and throw it on the table and say, here's why you should make this decision. This is what my ultimate goal and objective is. Here's the data that backs it up. What do you think? And the other side goes, no, not doing it. And then we're left scratching our head going, huh, it seems logical to me. I wonder why they can't see that this is going to benefit us both because you haven't taken the time to demonstrate for them that you understand where they're coming from, what their frame of reference. And so it's the equivalent of trying to feed a steak to a lion that just ate a goat. You haven't taken the time to figure out that the lion just ate. He's not going to want your steak at this point. It's all about the sequencing. We think we're going into the negotiation room. To make a decision about X, but I'm here to tell you that the decision has already been made. Your job is how do we change that decision, mm-hmm. and so it's all about sequencing the conversation. So that's a long, convoluted answer, but deferring and subordinating yourself and learning how to appropriately sequence the conversation are the biggest takeaways from hostage negotiation.
1: And of course, like you just mentioned, these are also things, these insights. This is what you also apply now. You're working with a lot of CEOs and leaders from big companies. This is what you do with Black Swan together with mm-hmm. your partner, Chris Voss. What still surprises you about the negotiation skills of big CEOs? What are some common mistakes?
0: The amount of deception mm-hmm. and the amount of aggression during the negotiation. You guys in the private sector, you guys yell at each other, call each other names more so than any time that I ever was on the phone with any hostage taker. Think about that for a second. I have more civil conversations <laughs> with people who are involved in criminal activity than you guys have. Have in the corporate world. We, this is a great example. We were recruiting for other instructors at the Black Swan Group. And Chris knew someone who had recently left the Bureau and started doing kidnap and ransom work for an insurance company. And we wanted to recruit him to be a part of the Black Swan cadre. And he said, thanks, but, and well, he said, well, what do you guys do? we're training people in the corporate world how to apply hostage negotiation practices and principles to their environment. And he goes, "Uh, no, I think I'll pass. And so we were left to scratching our head going, well, why? And he goes, my brother-in-law works for a company that's well-known throughout the globe. In fact, most of us would not be able to function without it. I'll leave it at that. But it's it's a software or it's an IT company. And my brother-in-law tells me all the time about negotiations that he's been in where deception has been flying around the table And they just seem like a slimy, sleazy environment. It seems like a slimy and sleazy environment, something that I don't want to get involved in. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, he would rather talk to terrorists in third world countries as opposed to CEOs for a major Silicon Valley company. That says a lot about what goes on in the private sector. And so that's what surprised me the most the, the amount of deception. And the amount of name calling that goes on with or between people who are trying to do business with each other. It just it's mind blowing. Superhumanize.
1: The gentleman you mentioned also the, who said that this, the deception was something that just really bothered him. You said in an interview that body language and a tone of voice are usually more important than the content of what is actually said. Yeah. Can you give two or three examples of things people do when they're lying or uncomfortable? Also for us to actually detect If there's somebody in front of us that's trying to deceive us, there's something that's just not quite right. How can we identify that?
0: Yeah. All right. So I'm not a body language expert. Let me preface what I'm about to say for that. So there are people that will listen to this podcast and they may take issue with some of the things that I say. But I will tell you, first of all, there are hundreds, if not thousands of ways for somebody to lie to you. And that lie will manifest itself in something physiological. There's only one way to tell the truth. And so what I'm looking for is deviations in the responses that I get to some of the skills that we employ. And if I pick up on those deviations, is it intentional or is it a, a just a mistake on their part. That's what I'm trying to evaluate. So in terms of body language to determine deception, there are experts out there that say, if they're talking to you and they look up to the left and then look back at you, they're lying. And then you'll listen to another expert they'll say, if they look up to the right and they look back at you, they're lying. If they look down, this is what it means. If they look that way, this is what it means. And pretty soon you've got experts telling you that every manner of human behavior indicates deception. And so it it's just hard to figure that out. And because there's so many different ways to lie, we look on who's telling the truth and how can we decipher that. And we usually decipher that by continuing to apply the skills because ultimately deception is going to be manifested in their responses to labels, mirrors, paraphrasing, dynamic silence, the accusations, audits, etc. And so what do you do when you figure it out? People who ask the question just the way you asked it want to be in a better place to determine whether or not they're being deceived. Okay. So once you find out that the person is deceiving you, what are you going to do then? That's the question. That's the real question. doesn't matter what technique you use to determine deception, but if you have uncovered the fact that this person is deceiving you, now what? Now what do you do? And From my perspective, if your intuition, 20 million bits of information per second, your intuition is going to tell you based on the responses that you get. And if you've got a person in front of you that's being deceptive, now you got a decision to make. If Mm. they're being deceptive with me and we haven't even established a formal agreement, what am I setting myself up for in the future? And do I want to be married, quote unquote, do I want to be married to this person for the next two, three, five years? If they're lying to me now and we've got no relationship and there's nothing hanging in the balance other than the agreement what's it going to look like when i need something delivered by x date and he says it's going to be there and then x date gets there and it's not there that probably didn't answer your your question but i think it's more important to determine what are you going to do once you discover the the, the deception and you can study body language all you want but your subconscious is going to tell you long before you get a read or become an expert on how to evaluate people's physiological responses to deception
1: and that's actually very, it's a a different than I expected, but very profound uh, response to my question because very true. What are you going to do when you find out? (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's actually something most people don't ask themselves.
0: Yeah. Um, Are you going to, are you going to call them on it? Yep. Yep. And if you call them on it, how are you going to call them on on, on it? Because even with someone who's engaged in deception, and I make up my mind that this is probably not going to work, I'm continuing to subordinate and defer to them. Mm. And I'm going to say to them, it sounds like our partnership in this endeavor is not going to work at this time, which is a shame because I really was looking forward to working with you. And if the planet aligns, if the planets align later down the road and the opportunity presents itself, I'd be more than happy to revisit this and discuss some type of future partnership. Mm-hmm. The last impression is the lasting impression. Even though I'm telling him, get out of my office, I'm not going to do it. What I want him to remember is I'm looking forward to future opportunities of working with. You. The last impression is the lasting impression. In every difficult conversation, people remember the most intense moment. And so I want him or her walking away with the last thing in my ear from Derek was, if the planets align and the opportunity presents itself, I look forward to working with you again. Mm -hmm. And that's what we call the Oprah Winfrey rule. Oprah is famous for taking people, well, disciplining, let's just call it disciplining other celebrities and making them feel good about it so that the next time Oprah calls, they pick up the phone. That's the ultimate. That's what you want. Even though you tell this guy, get out of my office, it's not going to work right now. The next time I call, I want him to pick up the phone. The next time I send him an email, I want him to respond. The next time that he interacts with someone who's going to interact with me, I want him to say, you know what? Derek didn't, we couldn't see eye to eye on this, but he treated me fair.
1: And a lot of these things are so applicable all across the spectrum, from the work that you did, the work that you do, sure. or private lives. If we look at America right now, as such a divided nation at present, how can we talk with people who are on the completely opposite side of the political spectrum so we actually can become the United States again? And I think a lot of the things that you mentioned here are very, very valuable tools, whether we want to do business, whether we want to grow personally or also that we want to grow together, back together as a nation. Yeah,
0: you're absolutely right. And what gratifies me more than anything is slowly but surely the message is getting out. And more and more, I'm having participants in our online content, participants in our live events, participants in our coaching program circle back to us to tell us this stuff is changing my life. Mm -hmm. And they're not just talking about their professional life. More often than not, they're talking about their personal life, Because the, the skills are predicated on the human nature response, they work beautifully when engaging people that we're close to in our, in our personal lives. And for me, to have people come back and tell me that after the fact is more gratifying than anything else. I We had a young lady who came to a live event of ours in New York. She lives in New Hampshire. We did another live event in Dallas that same year. Later that same year, she flew from New Hampshire to Dallas for the sole purpose of telling us. And she got very emotional when she did it, that she thought it was going to help her in her professional life. She had no idea it was going to be as impactful in her personal life and and very emotionally told us about the stories with her husband and, and her children. So that kind of blew me away.
1: And for people who would like to learn more about these coaching opportunities, the live events and the programs that you do, where can they connect with you? Where can they find the information?
0: BlackSwanLTD.com. There's a plethora of information on there on our offerings. There's a plethora of free stuff that you can start to just get your sea legs under you, get your head around some of these counterintuitive and awkward methodologies. And then, of course, once your interest is peaked and once you've got a good foundation, sign up for an online course, sign up for Chris's masterclass, sign up for coaching sessions with one of our four or five outstanding coaches. We're just trying to make people better by improving the way they interact with one another. Because to your point, if everybody would take the stance that in every difficult conversation, it's not about you, it's about the other person, how much better off would we be? There's
1: one question I ask every guest that I have the privilege to speak to on this podcast, and that's about the practices. Are there any practices that have accompanied you throughout your life or that you're focused on right now that have elevated you mentally, physically, or spiritually?
0: Let go. To let go and really recharge my battery, I like to I like to stay in in books that have nothing to do with negotiation. Mm-hmm. I like to just disappear in the books. I'm a cinephile as well, so I'm, I'm, my brain is probably being destroyed by the amount of Hollywood entertainment that I partake in. But one of the practices that I engage in on a regular basis is isolation on my motorcycle. Mm. I don't ride in groups. I don't ride with buddies. I ride by myself. I don't ride with my wife on the back. It's just me, the bike and the road and taking it up into the hills and just getting away to think about nothing, but staying alive on the bike. It's it's a pallet, cleanser for me. It's, it, it erases everything from the chalkboard and, and allows me to recharge my battery.
1: Sounds like a real mindfulness practice too because staying alive on the bike, putting you in the now. Right? Yes,
0: there is nothing like being in the now than being on two wheels with everybody and four wheels trying to kill you at the same time.
1: <laughs> what kind of a bike do you drive? I have
0: a Harley Davidson Sportster.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, Derek, thank you so much for sharing your expertise, your insights. This was a fascinating conversation for me and all the great tools it was really wonderful having you as a guest
0: thank you for inviting me i had a great time superhumanize accelerated evolution